Do you think about making dynasty trades even while watching football games? Are you thinking of player values when you should be thinking of family values? Then you may have a trading problem. Don't worry, you're not alone. I am Dynasty Outhouse and I have a trading problem. And I'm Brian Haar and I also have a trading problem. Join us for the Trade Addicts podcast where you can be with like-minded people and talk about everything in the NFL in the context of dynasty trade values. News and notes, make amends, keep trade buys, all these things we will cover every week. And don't forget Trade Addicts trades. So when you're done listening to this fine DLF family podcast, please tune into the Trade Addicts podcast. Thank you and enjoy your podcast. Look at this, I did find time to do an introduction. I was unsure. Um, the episode's dropping a day late. I'm dropping it Sunday instead of Saturday. And um, part of that reason is I had some technical issues, but the other part of it is I was really trying to cut down this interview into one episode, and it didn't work. didn't work at all. Um, so I'm going to cut it into two again. Sorry about that. Um, I talked to Anthony Amico this week for about two hours, and as you know, when I get an interview podcast on it, our conversations run longer. I do two types of episodes. Solo shows that stick to or under 30 minutes and interviews which last a lot longer. Essentially working through process and talking about how I form decisions and then actively applying it in a conversation with individuals. And the one takes longer than the other to record because um, I'm terrible at interviews and long-winded. But my guests are always good. And this week, like I said, I've got Anthony Amico at Mixer on Twitter himself i'm a really big fan of his been following along with him for as long as i've been on twitter really and um, was very excited to talk to him unfortunately my schedule's inverted from most normal humans i spent a lot of time up at night and turns out my thoughts words and everything moves a little slower anthony stuck with me did a really great job pulling this podcast along i think um, and having listened to it now, like I'm, I actually I'm really happy with the way it came out because and me and Anthony had a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thoroughly enjoyed having him on. Think you're gonna enjoy it too. In this first part, I've kept it mostly to uh, some Scott Fishball, but mostly talking about evaluating rookie wide receivers because that's something both me and Anthony do a, a lot of. I think I do a lot of it. I think he would say he does a lot of it as well. Definitely understands it very well. And so we broke down some differences in the way we evaluate and then specifically applied it to a few players in the 2020 class where we're kind of at opposite ends of the scale on the evaluation. So that was a lot of fun. The next episode is more going to be about projections in the 2020 season and what do we think of individual players in that regard. Although we did get to talk about Josh Allen in the middle of all that rookie talk. So I'm leaving that in the first episode as well. And um, one thing, the conclusion of the episode it's it's the conclusion of the whole thing because I'm lazy, lazy like that, and so I reference things I just brought up. I said all of those. Th I wanted to you know bring up all of those things, but it's disembodied because I've just removed all of those things. The rest of it makes sense, but I thought that might be a little weird for some people, so I thought I'd mention it. Um, even my introduction is too long this week. I'm really excited. I'm just really generally excited to have spoken to Anthony for so long, and, and to get to bring the conversation out because seriously, it was a lot of fun. Um, and I've got a lot of respect for him, and uh, it was really neat to be able to speak to him for the first time. So hope you enjoy it. Um, I will talk to you again next week, but also when the second part of this episode drops, hopefully tomorrow as well. But we'll see how that editing goes. Um, yeah, thanks again for listening, guys. Really appreciate it. And uh, I hope, although I think I know, you're going to enjoy this episode. Thanks very much. I'm really unprepared. It's meant to be nighttime and half my brain's meant to be shut down before I start this. So. Um, how is your Scott Fishball team going? That's where it's going. Start. It's going pretty well. Uh, first of all, Pete, I mean, just thanks for having me on. I, uh, sure. I'm pumped. I mean, I, you know, I think that you're definitely on uh, team imposter syndrome, but you, uh, <laughs> definitely. You're a, you're an awesome analyst. So this, I've been looking forward to this show. Uh, I love the stuff that you put out on Twitter. Uh, I love the stuff you do for the people. So uh, I just want to make sure I get that out there first. I am, um, if nothing else, a man of the people. Appreciate. Gotta that. be, <laughs> gotta be. Um, but I'm pretty pumped about my start right now in Scott Fishbowl. Uh, I had the one on one, took Patrick Mahomes, and was able to get Russell Wilson at the two three turn. So I like having the two stud quarterbacks in this format that I think rewards 
quarterback skill a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then I also have three receivers, Tyreek Hill, Juju Smith-Schuster, and Calvin Ridley. So I like that start for me. It's definitely one that, that, I, uh, that I prefer in terms of, uh, you know, not having a running back yet. And uh, we'll just kind of see what, go, what happens as we go on. Um, yeah, since you went professional, I guess I have to be professional. Uh, thanks for coming on. Uh, Anthony, you've just joined Fade the Noise, so I, I definitely want to mention next. Uh, I didn't know anything about that site until all my favorite people started signing with it, and now it's <laughs> a thing. So I definitely want to ask you about that, and that's where you can find Anthony. Then. Um, yeah, it, Scott Fishwell does seem to reward quarterback play, but you said good quarterback play. Is it good quarterback play? Because one of the things I've noticed is um, obviously Mahomes and Lamar, we're not talking about, you know, fading those noises. Um, But like Derek Carr, Jimmy Garoppolo, quarterbacks I think of as generically eh, fine. You know, they're around the Andy Dalton line, wherever that is anymore. Um, They seem to get a boost in Scott Fishbowl scoring specifically, uh, I guess because it's rewarding completions or completion percentage. Um, so yeah, um, it, it seems to be rewarding, a almost average or safe QB play at the same time as trying to award good QB play. Yeah, that's definitely fair. I think that the car bump is going to be a little overstated just because I think, uh, I think a really large portion of cars value last year <clears throat> under these settings would have just been because, I mean, this is like an extreme scenario where. He just has no weapons, so he's constantly checking it down. I actually think that his A dot probably rises this year now that they have rugs, a couple other talented players in the mix, and that probably brings his completion percentage down. So I don't really think he's going to see that same bump this year. Garoppolo, I actually do think is is probably still a decently talented quarterback, but again, like you're like you're saying, like low volume, they're just kind of asking him to to throw these like short passes. So maybe maybe saying it rewards QB skill is a little aggressive. But it definitely no, no, you're definitely right. It does penalize, though. I think like some of those guys that we would say are like the bad, good, the bad real life quarterbacks that are good fantasy quarterbacks, like Josh Allen. um, Like I think those guys take a little bit of a hit. So I I do like that aspect of it. Oh, thank God, and off. Like I love Scott Fishbowl. Don't get me wrong, but I think um, we're inundated with Scott Fishbowl, rightly so, content right now. But uh, you know, Allen gives me a jump off. Do you? Do you think Josh Allen improves again? You were talking about Carr taking a dip. And by the way, the Tyrell Williams shade in there was heavy and thick. Like, don't disrespect <laughs> my little draft kid guys, okay? But, um, like, Josh Allen, I mean, personally, I, I'm not a great quarterback evaluator. You know, you got to see your flaws. So I have a hard time noticing anything outside of the elite tier. Like, I can see Drew Brees. I can see Mahomes. Lamar Jackson and Patrick Mahomes are just obvious cam newton's value at his legs is just obvious but once it gets towards that center line i have a hard time differentiating good from bad from meh, from andy dalton or anything in that range so like josh allen i can tell that he improved dramatically like i can't find a jump that big actually into any year in terms of efficiency qb rating whichever way you want to go to prospect it but um like i it was still bad so we would have to jump again bigger than we normally expect a quarterback to do in order to you know get into this car jimmy garoppolo competent efficient passer range but do you see that coming do you expect that do you obviously we're hoping for it because more good qbs are good things but yeah i don't know if i'll ever be in the garoppolo cousins group of passing but I would expect an improvement just because they did bring in Stefan Diggs. Like I'm, I'm really big on the receivers and the weapons being a, a big part of quarterback production. I don't think that Allen will see as big a jump in terms of completion percentage, completion per- percentage over expectation. You mentioned he, he saw huge, huge jumps in that last year. I don't think it's, it's probably not fair to expect him to do that again, but I do think that there should be more incremental gains on him as a yeah. passer. I've argued with this only like in passing with Jacob Rickroad on Twitter, but I I kind of I kind of have doubts about the weapon to QB ratio. If you know what I mean, like I think the weapons can be good and even have good seasons, and the QB not. If you know what I mean, 
So just with that, like, suspicion, I worry. Like, Stefan Diggs can still do, you know, better than anyone did. Even even John Brown and Cole Beasley combined um, this year. And Josh Allen can still struggle as a passer overall. I'm not sure, so sure that the correction is as direct as having, you know, an exponentially better wide receiver creates exponentially better results for a QB. I think it can be marginal. Um I forget what I was looking at, but his efficiency was still, uh, I forgot what I'm thinking about, but uh, like uh, the way I was, the way I have it framed in my head is that Stefan Diggs will maintain the improvement because the improvement was based on large scale through efficiency through his wide receivers because Beasley and John Brown did an excellent job and Stefan Diggs might be able to sustain that, but he's not going to, you know, double it up because the, fi- the efficiency of the other guys was also operate or or already operating um at, at a fairly high level if that makes sense sure yeah, i'm more sense. nervous i'm talking to anthony amico it, it, it's it's a little nerve-wracking well you do, i mean i'm i'm literally nobody for you to be nervous about so that, that's um, nonsense that's nonsense <laughs> right there but uh yeah yeah i mean it makes sense to me i the thing that i always go back to with quarterback play is average depth of target is a, a receiver stat yeah. So yeah, as a result, like you're going to get all those air yards that the quarterback is going to pick up is really going to be on the receiver. And so much of how you produce is based on air yards. I mean, you could argue, I, would, I wouldn't argue that having Stefan Diggs makes Josh Allen a better quarterback. Like mm-hmm. he is who he is. I don't, like the incremental gains that he makes in his own play are what they are. But I just think that in terms of the results, like what you're actually getting out of that, the receivers are what's doing that. So in other words, uh, I don't know, like if you're making juice, right? Like right, right, right. The, the quality of the orange is, is what it is. That's the quarterback, but the receivers are what's squeezing and getting as much of that juice out as we can. No, I see what you mean. I mean, in my projection system, like the QB is basically a function of the weapons. You know, you total up the weapons, you apply how many games or the percentage of passing attempts, which is mostly, you know, pretty close to 100. And through those games, they get, they're going to get. And that's that. those are their numbers. So there's a connection. And that's what, you know, Jacob's always going at me on. They don't operate in a vacuum. I mean, there's a direct connection to how they do. But, you know, again, like, most of the best wide receivers in the NFL don't have the best quarterbacks. Plenty of good players play with mediocre to slightly below average, perhaps quarterbacks. Cortland Sutton's out there breaking out with Drew Locke. And despite a, despite a pretty good stretch there that got everyone way too excited based on his ADP, like um, Sutton did it despite Drew Locke and everything else going on on the Broncos, if you know what I mean. So right. I'm I'm not sure... Um, I was trying to try and steal your metaphor there, but um, yeah. And again, it's a little nonsense to say you're you're nobody. Like you're one of the people I primarily started um, when I primarily got into this. You were one of the people I was always following, listening to, and learning from. Um, but just in case I forget to record an introduction, I guess I'll do it here. Anthony is someone that understands the numbers just as well as anyone else. Definitely better than I do. And is also literally a football coach. So, I mean, that's like some unholy merger of both worlds going together there. So, yeah, Anthony Amico being no one is somewhat of a ridiculous statement, just to call you out on that a little bit. Um, what are you going to be doing over there at uh, Fade the Noise Network? Uh, we'll be, yeah, we'll be doing a little bit of everything. I mean, Fade the Noise is... Right now, a, a multi-site platform. We're going to plan on hosting our own data eventually, but we're also going to have sites for fantasy season, you know, season-long fantasy, daily fantasy, and sports betting. I do plan on contributing, kind of in all three of those phases. So definitely check out all the stuff over there. The, the site just launched today, or I don't know when this will be posted, but Tuesday, you know, that's when we're recording this. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. I think that we're going to have, I mean, I know that we have a great team, a lot of people that are definitely smarter than I am. And <laughs> uh, you're going to, you're going to want to check it out. I think it's going to be great. A lot of great tools, stuff like that. 
Um, I definitely like the name of the site. Literally, I mean, I try and read as much content as I can, but I did not know much about Fade the Noise until literally most of my favorite and smarter than me people started talking about how they've just been signed by them. So um, I'm pretty excited to be what they put out. And the reason I say I like the name isn't just facetious. It's because it speaks directly to most of what I try to do. I can know so much. I'm not a genius inventor of things like Sean Siegel. Um, or Josh Hermsmeyer, or, you know, um, it was actually Mike Clay that first came out with the idea of ADOF, but Josh Hermsmeyer definitely kicked it down the road some. Um, but I can find out about the things that those guys discover and then understand how much of it, how much it can tell me and how much it can tell me about what, which is basically what I, I assume fade the noise means. So I'm pretty excited to see what you do over there. Um, I, I guess the primary start at the beginning right like i don't have a list of questions i always wanted to ask anthony and miko in a in a notebook or anything but um prospect evaluation we were talking about that the other day and uh, you were uh, mentioning that you don't like or don't think we should use but i guess it's to use it for what but um the 20 percent threshold for breakout age and this is the other thing like trigger warning for all the non-nerds like me listening to this anthony is so good like the the differences we have are mostly technical like uh, he's already doing everything i do only better and so it's all like technical preference there's not nothing i can like call you out like you shouldn't be applying that number or we disagree on this we agree on everything and so it's just this weird preference over little tiny nuances to evaluation and that's going to get very nerdy very quickly but yeah, you can judge a breakout age by either when they cross a 20% dominator threshold or a 30%. I guess you could judge it by whatever you want, but those are the two ones that are out in the industry. Rotoviz did a lot of work to show um, that 30% actually has a better hit rate. It's a better group of players to go fishing in because you're going to hit more good players. Um, and that's definitely true when you look across it. I still track both, however. And my whole reasoning, and I tried to lay out in the thread, but I don't know if it proved to be you know very explanative but like if you just if you think of a 30 percent breakout age as something that gets you a better hit rate that's the same or similar to saying that the first round draft capital gets you a better hit rate it's a better pool to go fishing in but that doesn't mean i don't want to know the second round players are because plenty of good players come from that and the example that rolled off the top of my head was like Doug Baldwin never broke out to a 30% threshold, but he did with a 20% threshold. And so that's the whole reason I still track the 20 and still like it. And But you went a little further saying that you even, you use breakout agent models or you use it to project or evaluate a little bit more than I do perhaps. So um, yeah, what was that about? Why do you hate the 20% threshold so much? <laughs> I'm just not a, I guess I'm just not for inclusion. No, I, uh, <laughs> I just don't, I, um, I, I'm just like really wary of adding false positives. Like I, I try to avoid that as much as I can. And I, I totally hear what you're saying about, you know, if we're too exclusive, then we're not really gaining any new information. But I, I think if you look at the, basically the, the sample using all these different kinds of metrics, you're going to find that the 30% dominator gives you the best overall edge. I think in, in Blair, Blair Andrews article that I referenced in the thread, uh, he did mention that if you used three yards per team pass attempt as the breakout threshold, you actually had oh, the okay. best, you actually had the best hit rate, but kind of to your point, the the group was so exclusive that it wasn't really it wasn't probably very helpful so that's why like it's r squared was kind of in the middle so the 30 percent dominator produced the best r squared and also i think maybe a little underrated of something like a, a data point to look at when you're kind of evaluating this is it had the widest age difference between misses and hits in terms of the breakout and I think that that matters a lot too, because, mm. you know, at least for me, because I'm someone that uses decimals, but even if you don't, you definitely want there to be a delineation between players that hit and players that miss that is noticeable. 
right? If the if the gap in age is closer, even if your hit rate is better on average, there you're leaving like a lot of a lot more room for error with the average player because we're talking about more fractions of decimals difference that that can make a huge difference in the result. So, you know, a lot of the stuff that I look at now with breakout they're the most recent stuff that I was doing was dealing with years played. So actually just kind of dismissing the idea of age entirely, but I was still using that 30% breakout threshold and it still was producing for me really great results. So I just, yeah, I just it, don't want to dismiss that. It definitely does. And I don't want to over-exaggerate how useful the 20 is. Like to be fair, going back to 2003, I can find eight eight players that never broke out for like a 30% threshold, but then did have a top 24 season, DJ Chark, Devante Parker, Randall Carr, but they're both interesting because they broke out at a 20% threshold at age 18. And then Doug Baldwin, that's the one that I remembered off the top of my head, Percy Harvin, Jerry Mac Jeremy Macklin, Brian Hartline and Eddie Royal. So we're not getting like the, the winners here, but uh, at the same time, like it just, exactly what you said i just it, it was an interesting thought also because you said um i think you use decimals and that's again it's just another technicality like i think personally i've just always felt it gets a little too specific i don't know that a player being a month or two months older is necessarily different across the board um and so i prefer the more generic category of you know 18 19 not 19.4 19.6 but it's all this technical stuff that you know even I'm getting a little bored about talking and that's saying something. Um, so I guess the next question is who does that apply to in the 2020 class? But players that didn't break out to a 30% threshold. Well, the, 20, the, the 2020 class is loaded. So you're not going to find, you're not going to find a lot of guys like that. Like most of the guys who were drafted early Jerry, actually were just excellent. Yeah, but Again, that's a 30%. Like Jerry Judy, I've got it that he didn't cross 30%. Um, obviously, that's that, uh, that team situation. T. Higgins as well. Both of those names right. seem pretty hot and heavy. Um, um, so are you lower on those players, would you think? Or is it just not that simple? No, I mean, I'm, not, I'm just not, not going to use one number. You know, like I think that that's, one, <laughs> that's, that's one data point that I love. Like I love breakout age. But it's just really easy to explain a lot of the faults in either player's profile, at least to me. Uh, you know, like for Judy, he's playing with potentially three other first-round wide receivers. Like, you're just not going to get as much volume. And he still, I thought, produced really well, just in terms of, like, raw production. And in the case of Higgins, he was someone who was crushing, like, if you actually split his, his games up based on half, in first halves of Clemson games, he was dominant, absolutely dominant. Um, but the issue is that their average, I forget the exact number, but like their average margin of victory was humongous. So like in the second half, they weren't passing a lot or there were a lot of situations where he was just out of the game. So that right. hurts his season long market share numbers. But if you actually just try to focus on the parts of the games that mattered, he would have been and excellent you know he would have he would have been excellent in, those, in that context see again where i'm just simple-minded uh fellow wearing a scott fishball shirt like i don't know like i did investigate it the noise got too strong about you know competition level on the same team and my first my question the reason i never investigated was who are we trying to catch who was a great hit that was underproductive because his teammates were really good and i couldn't find anyone like michael thomas is a big hit a big miss um ever really with uh, across the board he really didn't show up in production metrics but then hit and that there's not a lot of reason to expect he was crowded out by a great wide receiver core and um, but the argument i got back I, I guess the argument you get back is he was also playing for a bad team but that's meant to adjust because we're talking about percentage of the team not how good the team is why wasn't he a bigger part of a bad team in other words so i, I did look at it and like um i created a, a teammate score well you know by conference how much l more or less productive is the number one or the number two or the number three wide receiver on the team 
And what's spiked for me is that Jerry Judy's in that conference, the SEC, um, his play, the, the players that he was competing with were producing about 3.6% more of the team's production than average in the SEC. And he was about 3% less productive than the average breakout in the NFL. And I was like, okay, that kind of adds up. That kind of adds up. But I still wonder who we're trying to capture. Who was who were the great players who were just the production metrics were low, but now we look back and think, you know, well, obviously his teammates were really good. It's just maybe this is just a uniquely unique situation. But most of the examples I could find, like you know, Odo Beckham or Jarvis Landry, or uh, there was I forget the team now. It's been forever since I did the research. But um, there was a 2004 team that produced a couple of good players. Um, but all of them crossed the thresholds of production, 20% or uh, and most of the time 30% as well. So I just, you know, um, I, I, I don't know what we're trying to catch with discounting Judy. Now, having said that, and that's the great thing about you being great at both, is that I can't really speak to that play on the field. I don't know. I've watched, but I don't know if it's good. Like it was fun to watch, <laughs> so I know that. But um, and I've read reviews about uh, Jerry Duty specifically seems to leap off the the tape page. I guess is that the terminology, and when you watch him about his skill level, so I, I guess you're incorporating some of that into your evaluation as well. I'm just kind of trying to dig into your rookie evaluation process. Well, so a couple things, right? So when I'm modeling, like the last iterations of of all my models to include a like a scout grade basically and it's not done by me because i'm not good enough to do that it's just done by uh, i think most recently i used the espn rankings and the espn rankings were incredibly strongly correlated with success because Mm -hmm. those guys i mean that stuff that stuff still matters uh in the case of judy he's still he was still a very highly recruited prospect out of high school he won a blitnikoff award He's young, and he was a three-year college player. All of those things are huge positives in a player profile. So the fact that he misses on this one piece that I think is important, but is probably overstated in, in his case, I don't. It doesn't bother me as much. I don't know if that makes sense. How it's hard to it, but. No, no, I got you exactly. I mean, if I get it, I think everyone gets it. <laughs> so, um, no, I see exactly what you mean. I guess my trepidation here, and it's weird to do it with Judy, because like I say, I, I can understand that he wasn't that much lower based, because what I do, I don't use breakout age necessarily. I do look at it, um, and I evaluate through it. But in terms of modeling, although the, the fancy nurse stuff I try to replicate, um, I, I use adjusted metrics which i know i've gone off on people for you know how everything's adjusted this year we're adjusting the adjustments to fit our preconceived notions most of the time but um i can you know since age does seem to be a consistent factor in how much a player produces and how well they produce at that age seems to actually have some signal for how good they are in the nfl when so few things have any signal I don't mind adjusting that way. So, and, and those numbers track better for me. Like when I age adjust their years production instead of just using breakout age. And that's why I found my, personally, that's, that's just what I do. And, and it's awkward to argue with Judy because I can see it with Judy. I, like I'm not low on Judy particularly. So like this is an awkward player to have it an example of. But the one thing that he is low on or the one thing a player can be low on that really does make me squint a little bit is production because all good NFL players look remarkably different. I don't, I don't, I mean, we can argue thresholds for size, weight, and athleticism, but I think the fact we're using thresholds instead of something a lot more exact says it as well that, you know, Odo Beckham to Calvin Johnson, they, they look incredibly different. Um, And also they produce incredibly different, but they do seem to have some commonality. There's some signal which, like again, most things don't, to how productive they are, they were at their state of age, their, their personal state of growth, physically, experience-wise, mental maturity, whatever it is. I don't actually know what the, the ingredients of the secret sauce are. 
And so it does make me worry. Like that's one really important thing, even if it's just one, one thing. Like it's pretty much the only thing I know before, especially without being a tape evaluator, I can know they're good or bad at that has some connection to most, the majority of breakouts in the NFL. Um, having said that, it's moved on a lot since breakout age. Like breakout ages are tied, like you mentioned, yards per team pass attempt. And I think that would be a really interesting way to take a second look at age-adjusted production because, you know, yards per team pass attempt actually has better predictive power than almost as predictive as age-adjusted and you don't have to do anything to it. So have you, you've converted over to that mostly because I learned about it from you and JJ. So. Yeah, that's that's pretty much what I'm going with for the most part in terms of like a final – a final year production metric. I think last year I tried adjusting it for strength of schedule and that, that worked as well. Um, so like adjusting the yards per team pass attempt against the passing strength of schedule for the team. But again, like I kind of get back into like, is the juice worth the squeeze? I don't know if I was getting, it was, right. it was like more predictive, but it wasn't, like this huge difference where I would go out of my way maybe to make that calculation every year because it was kind of a pain in the butt to do. So <laughs> I don't know. If I'm I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> and sometimes you can navel gaze this stuff into oblivion where it doesn't matter anymore, but it looks real fancy and you feel real good because you got to the end of it. Um, so I know exactly what you mean. That's why I try and keep it as simple as I can. I, I've been using yards per team pass attempt to look at how well they performed compared to their teammates. And I'm calling that a certain level of efficiency. Like CD Lamb, on average, was 1.7 yards per team pass attempt above his teammates. And that's that's like a really good number for an entire career. For example, Justin Jefferson was 1.9 yards per team pass attempt above his team's average. And I think I'm only using the average of the top three receivers on the team. Um, Jerry Judy was low, but let's not go back there. Um, so I think yards per team pass attempt has a lot of potential. Um, I was trying to think back to your rookie content. You're a big fan of LaVisca Chenault in terms of situation into the NFL, though, aren't you? We're talking about the guys everyone likes. LaVisca's a little more... Divide, uh, a little more broad in his range of ADP, shall we say? He's awesome. I don't. What's the what's there to argue? I don't even know. I just. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> he hits. He just hits so many, so many marks for me because he does have he does have the breakout in college. Mm. He was a three year college player, which was something that I looked at at SportsGrid. That was probably like the last major piece I wrote for them. And, you know, spending the three years in college total is, is a huge indicator. He has rushing production, which I always love as a bonus. And he's in position now as a second round pick on Jacksonville to, I think, immediately step in and receive a decent amount of targets. So for me, there's really just nothing not to love. I mean, I guess if you're going to make one argument against Chenault, it would just be that he was injured in college and, Sometimes the guys who are injured in college end up being injured in the pros as well. But I mean, sometimes they don't. I mean, Keenan Allen was injured in college and then he wasn't, you know, and then he was injured again and he wasn't. You know what I mean? Like, Matthew, kinda... Ma Matthew Stafford was injury prone until he wasn't. Yeah. Um, yeah. We don't really know what to do with that, all playing Twitter doctors. But I agree with that. Apart from, and this is a weird thing. Like, Here's a man whose process I don't even respect, but try and emulate, and I agree with across the board on almost everything you say, and I come out to the exact opposite conclusion. Like, I don't think, I didn't find any of it with Chanel. Like, I know he broke out to both thresholds, but he did it in the same year, and the rest of his years are trash. And that's a worrying sign. And I know you, he was injured, but, um, like, that's a worrying sign to me, because players there's this phony type of producer in college that continually comes up and just, how should we say, uh, confused me before in that he does seem to have it in this one year. He was productive in this one year. He broke out to either threshold and he was only 3% below the average for producers going into the NFL in, you know, age adjusted production, which isn't that too far off on Judy playing in the Pac-12, so it's a different conference. And so I understand it. And he is 
frankly, much physically, much more like, I guess, the ideal we have in our head, which is, you know, just a Calvin Johnson scale, which is painfully false, especially in recent years. But like, it was just the one year. And something I've decided, uh, I've started to incorporate in my process is that college production isn't just he hit these numbers, the numbers themselves, the amount of receiving yards percentage of his team. Oh, there's no one I'm nervous who I'm talking to because my questions take longer than the answers. But um, like, it's not just hitting those numbers. It, he doesn't have the ability to compete in the NFL because he did well at age 19. He also has to get experience. He has to get whatever the ingredients of the secret source of breakout age are. And if you only do it in one year, like Kelvin Benjamin had one great year at a slightly older age than LaVisca, sure. Um, and LaVisca was painfully less efficient compared to his teammates using that, you know, uh, yards per team pass attempt above um, his teammates kind of score compared to all the other prospects. Having said that, I don't hate it because there's enough there. So it's, there's enough there. He did do well in that one year. He is physically gifted. He is going to a situation where you you know you, you don't hate it, um, but like it, it's weird that I came out to the opposite conclusion with Visca across his production. Um, also, I have I have issues with Jacksonville. It seems like a player breaks out in some manner for the last three years, and then they just fade him and go on to someone else. Like last year it was DJ Chark. The year before that it was. Um, I forget which order was, but there was a D.D. Westbrook minor breakout, and then there was a undrafted guy, Keelan. Keelan Cole, yeah, year Keelan one. Keelan Cole, who I absolutely love. Oh no, wait, he was. Uh, it wasn't Cole. It was. Uh, it wasn't Alan Hearns was the one that actually had like the big breakout, right? Cole was oh, that like was on a... for a couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah, but I counted it. Um, Alan <laughs> Hearns was slightly before that, and slightly before that, and obviously before that, you've got the uh, Alan Robinson era. And in there somewhere is when Alan Hearns happened. It doesn't seem like they stick with that guy as much. But that doesn't say much to, about LaVisca in his first year. And it, it's an interesting name to see you throw out. Because, again, I'm kind of using one of my tropes rather than his actual numbers to discount him. And um, what was I going to say there? Yeah, I think it's interesting because, like, one player from pretty much every rookie class going back as far as I can see, except for a couple of years, at least one rookie makes it into the top pub and it's almost never who we think. And so it's kind of this dark horse candidate theory, which, you know, is probably a logical fallacy, but I really like the idea of at least knowing that you like him. So I wanted to bring him up so everyone else can know, like the smarter guy actually likes Visca. I'm a little low. Well, I think there's like one more thing on him is that if you knew, if you know anything about Colorado football, he was, he was the only show in town. And I think that that hurts him if you're looking at something like efficiency. Like you may recognize him as being maybe a low efficiency player, but they literally just try to give him the ball every chance that they could. Right. And he still kind of hit these usage metrics that we like in terms of a career market share of receiving yards, breakout age, stuff like that. So I think that the, I think that the, the concerns are noted. But this is a scenario where if, you, if you've just kind of tracked the career of the player and his arc, he's just, been, he's just been kind of dynamic and the only dynamic player that Colorado has. And there, that matters to me. That is a – well, obviously, it's a good point. Um, but, like, it's hard, you, hard to be more efficient with more volume. I mean – uh, literally DeAndre Hopkins is an inefficient player by NFL standards, but it's because he takes all of the targets and it's just harder to remain efficient when you get in that level of volume. Um, the risk was at like 33% of receiving yards um, in that age 19 season. Similar players to Justin Jefferson with 30% who was efficient. But like you were saying, he, Justin Jefferson's getting more targets likely in a more similar situation rather than just being force fed the ball all over the field in, in higher or low risk areas. So Jefferson wasn't getting that problem. The other one that keeps popping up for me, I, I like, he's a guy I like that's a little lower on consensus is Denzel Mims. I don't know what you think of him, to be honest. I assume you like him because I like him, but 
Um, he did play four years, though, which is something I wanted to circle back around. So maybe that's a good way of doing it. But he played at similar level of volume at least twice in his career, 31 and 28% receiving yards um, and was efficient in the Big 12. So do you have a particular opinion on Denzel Mims? Like other than, yeah. I'm, I honestly, I'm honestly not sure. That's the thing. Ooh. He's He's one of the more confusing players for me because I, I see the argument on both sides. He doesn't fit. He doesn't fit the mold of a guy that I'm typically looking for in the sense that he was a four-year college player. He didn't break out early in in terms. He didn't break out as a true freshman, I should say. That's a that's a data point that I've noticed as being important. But he did he did break out as a sophomore. So it, it it's confusing. It's just confusing for me. The athletic profile is fantastic. He did very well at things like the senior bowl, which I probably doesn't matter as much as people say, but does get you at least on the no. field. You know, it's going to give you that right, chance. Right. And, uh, you know, he has a shot for volume, which I think is probably the most important thing. So yeah. I don't, I'm kind of in the middle for him. I, I did draft him. I took him in a rookie draft with some other analysts. I took him at 206. So I think that price is probably fine. But on the whole, I'm, I'm mostly just confused. I don't really know. All right. Let me like stump up for my man here. Um, and uh, to be real clear, Crossroad, I'm using a narrative device here to compare two very different things to make it seem like they're the same thing just to defend my man. But if we're going to make excuses for, um, you know, LaVisica Schnault missing time and therefore not being good those two other years, Denzel Mims first year, he only played two games. So, right. like, he's a four-year player, but he didn't play that first year, which I guess goes to the idea of, you know, what what is the value of only playing three years? And if it's draft capital because teams like that, well, Denzel Mims was drafted in the second. If it's experience, and, like, I don't know how too much experience can be bad, but he didn't get it because he only played two games in that first year. And he did play three years after that, and he was more productive, and he was more efficient. I'm not sure about this. Because I, I read, um, you're the one who wrote the Rotoviz article on career year, on how many years they played, right? I think Blair may have written that because my article is Sports Grid. I think I've read one from you. I read from one from uh, Rich Harbar as well. So, you know, just Rebar, to put yeah. myself up against, you know, all the smart people who disagree with me. I, I think, you know, seasons played in college is residual breakout age signal if you know what i mean it seems to have a strong connection to it and it makes sense right your breakout age is connected to the ages you played in college um and players who played four years who break that trend also happen to produce more like denzel mims did than the ones who don't anyway because that's why we're looking at them in at all because they have productive college seasons so i'm not sure what adding the years they've played does it, it could it not be a like a double counting mistake of breakout age it's some connection to breakout age it's probably something to do with that i'm not yeah, sure so why only playing three years is better i get so the it, numbers but i don't get what the story is yeah so just to just to clarify a couple things it's not it wouldn't actually be three years of play it would actually be three years removed from high school. So in other words, if you redshirt, Ooh. but then you only play two seasons and declare, that's that's a three-year college player for me. Gotcha. So that's, that's so the fact definition. that he played, yeah, so the fact that he played those two games, I'm not penalizing him for playing those two games. I'm penalizing him for returning in 2019. So hey, I'm all for early declaring, don't get me wrong. <laughs> right. And, uh, and by no means... I mean, we should always be looking at each player individually, and I, this is not this is not uh, exclusive. But just looking at the years, I think I looked back to 2007. So between 2007 and 2017, players who were three-year college players hit 36% of the time. Players who were four-year college players only hit 4% of the time, nine out of 233. Now, obviously, that's inclusive of players in all different draft rounds, but uh, those those four year players were just notably worse than the three. But again, uh, you know, exceptions obviously do occur, so I don't want to, you know, like Cortland Sutton is would be would be an exception. 
So I, I don't want to be, uh, I don't want to be restrictive of that. And usually I think if I was looking at a player who would maybe be an exception to that rule, it would be someone who changed positions. I don't know if that's true in Mims's case, but if you change positions, I'm, I'm more likely to just kind of throw that out because how could you be, how could you declare for the NFL after, you know, not, not really playing the position that you were going to declare for. Um, but that's kind of like the thought process, I think, behind how I'm viewing this. And, but, I, but I do think that Mims probably has about as good a profile as you want for someone who isn't reaching that threshold. Yeah, um, players with a 30% uh, breakout age at the age of 19 drafted in the second round broke out for a top 24 season 53% of the time since 2003 just as to throw a random number at you. I was just wondering if it beat that 36%. It does. Like, I'm, this is a thing with, like, career year. Like, I get it, and that's a much better definition. One of the problems I had with it was, what's three years? Because there were players who played three and four years getting counted as three-year players. So that clears that up for me. But, like, I think we do better with that. I'm not sure... I, I, I'm not sure what dividing him into these two different buckets which, you know, spreads the productive players, which are the ones that have something in common. It's the two separate places. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure about these buckets. I'm just not sure whether what we think we're capturing with it. But again, like all the smart guys disagree with me. So I'm probably wrong. But uh, I should have prepared if I was going to have this argument. I, I even forgot we, we, we disagreed on the breakout on the on the three and four college year programs and rich Harbour and yourself and um, Blair have laid it out all really well. I just, like you were saying, player by player, I think we can do a better job of seeing where they fit better when we take in their production, their draft round, especially obviously. Um, unfortunately into consideration, someone like Mims just splits into a better bucket, which again, you've already said, cause you're very boring and you think all the right things. I'm just trying to, create an argument for no good reason um but yeah i do kind of like mims as one of these exceptions but then he went to the jets and no one wants to hear you say that you like a jets player so that that's 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 awkward <laughs> um oh no that was the other thing so it was something in i think it was rich's piece that may that sparked my interest it was, it was something that seems to have happened more recently as well by what he was saying that increasingly three-year players, per your definition, um, are the ones who break out. Yeah, Is that I mean, true in yeah. your research as well. Yeah, and to be fair, like if you're just looking at, like, breaking out at all is always good, right? Like, the, like if I'm right. if I'm just like kind of splitting this, like even for those three-year college players, based on when they break out, the hit rate, you know. Breakout year one, 44%. Breakout year two, 44%. Breakout year three, 38%. But if you don't break out, 13%. You know, like that's the real delineation. You know, and then if you look at right, right, right. even the four-year players, it the sample is way smaller. But true. four of seven for if they break out in year one, two of nine if they break out in year two, two of 17 if they break out in year three, zero of 16 if they don't break out at all. So like the fact that Mims broke out and I think it's year a year two breakout for him. I could be wrong. That's mm -hmm. that still puts him in a in a group First that you play more than two games. Yeah, like that's that's a group that at least puts him in a in a in a. It's like a group that we could at least say we don't know enough about yet. You know, I think I think that players like Mims, you might just say, are rare. You know, players who probably are day two draft picks, but elect to go back to school anyway. You know, and sometimes that happens too. See, that's so what I, I worry about it for because if you don't take that into consideration, he looks normal, or, or he looks like he looks very much like a player that normally breaks it, or more often breaks out in the NFL. But including that, that three, four year college career, he looks like a rarity. And I'm like, I'm not sure I want to create extra rarities. They're already all pretty rare. But <laughs> I am kind of passing the difference here. Uh, to be honest, I just really like Mims, and I want everyone to like Mims. Even even on the Jets, I guess. Kind of getting towards... I, I'm trying to get you a wrap-up, just in case you do want to bail, because we're at like nearly at the two-hour mark. So um, I 
did want to mention all that stuff before we got out of here and really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Like that blows me away. Some of the people that I've been, you know, following and listening to forever, occasionally get to have a conversation with, and you're definitely one of those men. So I appreciate it. Oh, dude, it means a lot. I mean, I, uh, like I said, at the top of the show, like I, I like this is really cool for me. Like I know, <laughs> like you keep saying like how cool it is to have me on. And I'm like, are you kidding? Like I'm on your show, dude. Like, this is great for me. Like, oh, I, come on. you know, we've had so many interactions on Twitter and I think, uh, you know, being able to just kind of talk about some of this stuff is, is a lot of fun. And I, I really respect your process on a lot of things. So it's, uh, it goes both ways for sure. Yeah, I hate it because we disagree, but I can't pull your shit apart like I would pull other people's. <laughs> like I try because it's too like ah. Now I just gotta respect it. Um, but yeah, man, I'm just blown away. Uh, thanks for taking the time to come and talk to me. And it was so much time, by the way. Um, just in case anyone's still listening, gotta respect Anthony for holding in there with me, like everyone somehow seems to do. Um, appreciate it, dude. And uh, thanks to everyone else for listening. And I will see you again next week. Yeah. Chicken a crow, chicken a crow, crossing the road, go. Clicking a poll, Twitter is gold, play run fold, so. Jake on the table and Nate on the play, so. Pete enumerates the plays, they're analytical. Picking my nose, don't really know if I like that. Picking their brains, got their lanes, but I like that. Picking these guys, all of these times, all of these nice stats. Picking apart, the film is an art, always a fight back and forth. There is no order, they disorder more and more because the players ain't no older. They some hoarders or some mortars, dropping bombs without no borders. They got that eye, I like mortar, peak grinding numbers like molars. I don't know anymore, I am at a crossroads. Chicken a crow, chicken a crow, crossing the road, go. Clicking a poll, Twitter is gold, player unfolds, so. Jake on the table and Nate on the plays, so. Pete enumerates the plays, they're analytical. Chicken a crow, chicken a crow, crossing the road, go. Clicking a poll, Twitter is gold, player unfolds, so. Jake on the table and Nate on the plays, so. Pete enumerates the plays, they're analytical. Okay, let me, let me just do this thing. Because I've let other people say it and just not shut them up a few times, but it just need to bite the bullet here. Um, if you could go to your podcast app, internet, browser, whatever you use to listen to this show and other shows, leave a, a like, a subscribe, a review. I'd really appreciate it. It'd really help us out. I'd like to know what you're thinking of the show. Um, I also have a YouTube page, YouTube backslash PA Howdy, I think, but it's also in the description of the show. Um, I'd really like to know if you're enjoying the videos or which videos are helpful or not helpful. Liking and subscribing. I'm assuming you know how YouTube works. Finally, I also have a Patreon page. Um, it's free. Mo almost everything I post on there is free. I do try and keep a few little things for Patreons to say thank you. But like access to it is for all levels. Support on there is just support. It's not a product I'm selling. I try not to do ads. I don't do ads anywhere. <laughs> um, I don't sell you anything. But if you have a dollar this month or every month, three dollars or whatever you can or can't afford, it's just fine with me. But I'd really appreciate any help you could give me with any of that. If you find any value entertainment or anything else in any of my work. So yeah, ch check them out, I guess. And now I have fully sleezed myself up. Uh, we need to do something else. Really appreciate it. Uh, let's go. Let's let's do something more fun. Okay. Thanks. Bye.